0: This podcast is brought to you in association with Cloud Banking. Fintechs were targeting a customer segment that banks were not, but they could not do that without having the regulatory rails that the banks had. So there, were, there had to be a partnership. Some banks were willing to put in the effort to put in the technology themselves to make Fintechs talk to them. Uh, some were not able to do that or did not want to do that. And some Fintechs found it very tough to navigate that interaction with banks. So they stepped in and their, their primary task in the early days was to make sure they evangelize this among the banking ecosystem. Welcome to the GFF 23 show. This podcast brings you a taste of the global fintech fest organized by the fintech convergence council, payments council of India and national payments corporations of India happening in Mumbai from the 5th through the 7th of September, 2023. Over the past three years, GFF has grown to become the largest fintech summit globally, demonstrating the pivotal role of fintech and driving sustainable global advancement by showcasing a 360 degree view of its transformative potential. In this episode, Mihir Gandhi, partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers, discusses emerging payment trends with Camilla Bullock, CEO of Emerging Payments Association Asia. They delve into real-time payments across Asia, covering growth, ecosystem players like banks and fintechs, cross-border challenges, and standardized QR code usage. This discussion brings to light the significance of collaborative efforts in propelling innovative success across Asia's real-time payment scenario. PricewaterhouseCoopers is the knowledge partner for this episode.
1: Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Mihir Gandhi. I work with PricewaterhouseCoopers as a partner in the payments consulting practice. And I have with me Camilla Bulak, who's joining us from Australia. We wanted to discuss the emerging payment trends, focusing on real-time payments across Asia and what's happening in terms of the emerging payment trends, what are the new innovations what are the new learnings that one can look at and take away for other countries? So that's going to be the key focus theme for today's podcast. Camilla, if you want to please come in and introduce yourself.
2: Thank you very much, Mihire. And to start off, I'm delighted to be here as a guest today. Really appreciate it. So I have the pleasure to run the Emerging Payments Association Asia. So we're a branch organization for participants in the payments industry And with that, I mean, anybody who involves the movement of money from a bank to the rails, to the platforms, the pay and also supporting services with it being in digital identity or data hosting or cybersecurity. And we bring the industry together to make sense of what's going on. And so then when we have a voice for the industry, we're really comparing apples with apples and we can have a unified voice into regulators with a vision of enhancing payments and improve lives everywhere through payments.
1: Excellent. we we'll just start off with an opening kind of uh, comment, which says that the overall Asia-Pacific real-time payment transactions today currently stand around 50 billion transactions. And that is expected to more than double in the next four to five years to over 100 billion transactions going forward. Uh, obviously, this, these are broad-level estimates, and you know again, things may change as specific countries pick up. We have heard about China doing pretty well, and also India doing well on the real-time payments with their respective systems. But I'm just curious to know, Camellia, in your experience, what are the other countries doing? How are they faring? Which are the other emerging countries that are doing well on the real-time payments? You know, what are the key success factors for them? So if you can please share your views.
2: I think we also have to include Thailand as a newcomer in this real-time payment space. But first, When we talk about success in real-time payments, what is that actually? Is it the value it brings to users who starts to use real-time payments and again, take into account real-time payments instead of what? And then as well, is it uh, the amount of transactions or is it the volumes of transactions, but I think uh, we're many markets that are really taking that projection on using more real-time payments and specifically a country like both Thailand and Indonesia, where it's also about inclusion into digital payments. I think that is success stories that should be mentioned on this topic.
1: Sure. No, I think you're absolutely right, Camilla. I think the key parameter to define success differs by each country and each geography across the world. So I can give you a perspective with In India, the whole reason why We started off with this real-time payments was a way to displace cash, right? And displace the small value transactions that happen via cash, where you need to exchange currency notes, wait for the change to come back to you in coins or notes, and just displace an entire kind of, and make it more efficient and faster for the customer as well as the recipient to make the payment. So I think that was the original premise. Obviously, a lot has evolved, and now it is also going into other use cases and other different kind of payment transactions. So I think that's where we are, right? So it would be interesting to get your views and what you have seen working, say, a China or a Thailand or Indonesia. Is it displacing the small value transactions or is it also, you know, going for the larger ticket sizes?
2: I think across all our markets in this region, it is really that peer-to-peer or SME or even micro merchants where we see the biggest uptake. And also where success has come is really where the government is working and having a really, I shouldn't say that other markets doesn't have a thought through plan, but it's really measured in something like financial inclusion or enablement together with the key thing that India did so well in having that open architecture system so that you can create overlay services on it. Because yes, the real-time payments infrastructure as itself will never reach the end users. I mean, we know you look at fintech all the time and coming from that background is really is the the user experience. So how does it look, be it at the point of sale or in an app or, or wherever it might be? So in combination between government incentives, open architecture, and I think we had a webinar discussion on this recently, which was that you need in the beginning have absolutely no friction. So you have to look at the cost model that you go to market with. So it needs to be on par with what people are using today or preferable cheaper.
1: I think the, the way these platforms have evolved is very different originally. The adoption of which we have seen was not that high, but over a period of time, as people got more comfortable, people started adopting these systems and platforms. More players came into the fray, and you know got an opportunity, especially the big techs and the fintechs, in this uh, real-time payments ecosystem, and they played a significant role in ensuring that the platform is convenient, the experience is smooth, and you know the customer can quickly scan and pay, or you know just pay with a telephone number with whatever uh, alias we are kind of using and, you know, just kind of complete the transaction both for P2M as well as P2P transactions. So I think that has been a, a great kind of uh, journey that we've seen.
2: So it's interesting you're saying that the proxy or the alias that potentially something that could have been did, did it different delivered to the market. I'm not saying it right or wrong, but my experience, even from personal using the Australian real-time payments because we went uh, down the route with pay ID, which is your phone number that you enable within the bank app. But most of my friends doesn't know how to do it. I was in the market just the other day and I said, can I pay with pay ID? And, And they don't really know what it is. Instead, they're giving the BSB and the account number. So it is the take up. How do we feel extremely familiar with it? And what we didn't have in our market before is the pre-validation that is pinging back my name when i give the phone number you you didn't get that before with just the bank account number so it is actually value add i don't know if that was the same case in india in the beginning that people really got that validation that who am i sending it to was that a big part of
1: making people trust in fact in india i think that was one of the important components where you saw the person who you're sending to before you initiate the transaction and you get that comfort that you're sending to the right person so i think that was done but it's very interesting because we were doing a recent kind of uh, work for launching the south african real-time payments recently which is PayShap, and there we had a similar discussion and debate on what allies we should use right? what proxy we should use should it be the telephone number should it be the email id should it be a, a custom alphanumeric thing that the customer can select? But there were a lot of debates, a lot of industry stakeholders, banks, people came together. But I think we understood that the lowest common denominator for people is the telephone number. So let's keep that as one of the defaults. And then you can kind of give one more option of you know, a custom-based proxy or email-based proxy, whatever the customer is comfortable to remember. Because telephone number is the, Lowest common denominator. And as you rightly said, the validation needs to come through, but I am paying to the right person. So, you know, that comfort is provided.
2: It's interesting uh, with the almost de- digital identity that we go towards when we're talking about different proxies, because will we come to that day where it will be you roll them up and they are interoperable, but one will roll them all? I think that is something coming into, to, I know uh, we might talk about uh, in a bit that but cross border payments like what alias what what is that id that we can trust is on the other side of a transaction so definitely more to come across the region on that topic
1: yeah i think we're still in the discovery phase and you know we're all trying to kind of understand and work that out in terms of for cross border or you know what will work coming to my next uh, theme that i want to cover kemilia so what have you seen the role of uh, different ecosystem players to further the RTP systems in Asia Pacific. So do we see a lot of banks doing a heavy lifting or do we see fintechs or do we see, you know, the big techs like Google, Amazon, etc., Apple coming into the play? Or is it the large pushes driven by the regulator and, you know, people are just trying to kind of uh, appease them and take it forward? So what has been your experience in, say, Thailand or in Australia? What works?
2: I guess it's always in payments, there is not an easy answer to this because they all play a role in it. But I mean, the infrastructure needs to be, that's the thing we need to tick the box first. And then the backing of the government, so the right people get access, but who are the right people? What do they need to adhere to? I think that's a question in each market again. But. I think in general, coming back to to India's story, which has been so successful, it is that you give the fintechs access to the real-time payments to create that UX that has really had time to dig into single individual and SMEs problem because they are the first wave of uptake. And I think in a recent discussion I had uh, around the landscape in Indonesia, and that's really with an ask from the big banks, this was a big bank saying that could we host a discussion with the fintechs, how we best can work together to serve the merchants like a tier three and four, because they are so many. So we need to go to market together. So I think it's not just one, we can't do it without the bank. We can't do it within uh, the infrastructure and the fintechs really, or the paytechs, or what we want to say, really needs to be there also. And the end of the day, the big platforms, they have the trust that they have the activity. And I think that's something that we've seen in Thailand. They they did a fantastic rollout and they get great uptake on their digital wallets that was issued by the government. And they also did the disbursements into the wallets to to encourage the usage. But there is still a way to go to have that frequent use within the wallets. And and there's different reasons for that. Again, it's not just solved with one thing, but it is that a big key on the on the road to, to more cashless or less cash society.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. So I'll just give you an example of what happened in India. Initially, it was the banks that you know participated and provided the access to the customers to uh, use RTP system, which is UPI. Obviously, the infrastructure was laid down by NPCI under the guidance of the Reserve Bank of India. What happened later was, Uh, The bank apps, you know, there's a lot of features, a lot of products. So people often were not able to use the RTP uh, system through the bank apps. And that's where uh, the opening up of RTP or UPI to the big techs and the fintechs came into play. And they said that you cannot go directly, but you can go via banks as your sponsor bank. But you need to have like a certification or approval by the central operator, which is NPCI to operate as a third party application, which is a TPAP. And you know, that's how the big techs came into play. And you would be surprised to know that today the big techs co- control or contribute almost over 90% of the front end transactions that happen on the customer app uh, or through the UPI system. So it is the phone pay, the Google pay, Amazon, Paytm, et cetera, that are doing so well. And you know kind of have captured the front end of the market Obviously they have a sponsor bank in the back to kind of make this, you know, transactions and the settlement to ensure that entire leg is completed. But banks are still kind of trying to, uh, figure out a way in India to break through into this ecosystem. And while there is a lot of being push efforts, uh, should we create a separate app, should we create the same net banking app, but with a slicker interface, because at the end of the day, it is customer experience. Comfort and you know how the customer wants to evolve. So I think that's been really the story What we have seen, uh, however, there have been other markets where again, we have seen where the banks say that no We will do this first Let us kind of experiment for a year or two and you know, then fintechs are still out right now. They've not been granted access uh, so what have you seen working? Well, is it like a combination of two or let banks? have you seen that same challenge with banks in? across Asia and for India's banks, what would be the key learning if they want to really break up, break into the space and give a tough time to some of these fintechs?
2: I still say that it is a collaboration that that will have success. But I think, and I'm curious also to, to hear what you're seeing, which I would say is the next iteration is that when you add credit as an overlay, because that is really something that the banks are a unique place to add in their overlay services, be it in their wallet or app, or maybe they want to collaborate there also. But I think you have to be open in our market now. You, you have to really do it together with the, the fintechs to reach the end consumer, especially when we're talking about the masses that have been unbanked or underbanked. Otherwise, you won't find them, I think, and you don't do not have the time either. So again, I would be the one to say that open architecture is the way to go for a market.
1: Okay. Excellent.
2: What have you actually seen in the credit space? That's all the interesting stories that I'm hearing coming out of India. I think that the new credit focused products as well as what could be offered offline, I think that is the next story that come also to, to use real time payments for the masses.
0: Before we go on with the episode, a quick word from our sponsors. In the heart of the banking world, where every second counts and efficiency is paramount, a revelation, a cloud solution Indian banking can rely upon. Cloud Banking. Process loans in less than 10 minutes with seamless integration, automation at its finest, and workflows that adapt to your needs. Step into the future. Elevate your bank's lending operations with Cloud Banking. Now, back to the episode. I think credit has just opened up in
1: India, specifically credit on rupee credit cards and also credit accounts. So rupee credit cards uh, have already been launched Where the underlying is a credit card overlays a UPI and you can scan and make the payment or use your telephone number and uh, make the payment to a person to merchant. That transaction has opened up. It is uh, seeing a good kind of pickup and adoption by different banks because first banks need to issue the credit card and then the customers need to be made aware that, you know, there is an option of using a credit card linking that because today the default option is a bank account in India, right? So you need to actually make that shift and that change in the customer mindset. And honestly, a customer like me would be very happy to use a credit line rather than, you know, have multiple debits to the bank account and, you know, then have like a, a 50 page bank account statement or a 100 page bank account statement at the end of the year and explain that to my tax authorities of why I had so many uh, $1, $2 transactions, you know, so small transactions are happening, right? So I would be much rather uh, better off this. So in fact, there are certain apps that have come in recently, certain fintechs that are doing some good work. So there is a company called as Kiwi uh, that is doing good work in this space. And they have uh, tied up with NPCI to operate a third-party app like Google Pay and Phone Pay, and also have tied up with few banks at the back to uh, issue an instant virtual credit card uh, in under three minutes is what they say. And, uh, you know, you get a credit card of Rupe, you get a, a proxy from Kiwi, you marry the two, and you start transacting. So it's as simple as that.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I definitely think we'll see so much coming in that space especially when we kind of lower the time for customer onboarding as a product of that one of my favorite words like i think first half of this year was the solving at the point of context when you're doing something there and there. So it's not really the embedded yet but it is offering at the concept why am i getting this here and now and in that i think any providers just gain so much trust because they do understand me at that point in time and the product sits there and i do you think that the banks are often involved in such a story
1: yeah i think credit is going to be an exciting phase for india specifically you know how people use credit and bring more customers under the credit regime because today there are only 40 45 million customers under the formal credit uh regime in india which have access to a credit card and maybe another 50 million more that have access to a credit line which could be an unsecured line or loan or whatever it is so how can we expand this pool given the population of India is over a billion uh, population? You know, so I think that's that's what we're looking forward to, actually.
2: Yeah, but I think also we have to take into consideration when we compare the different markets. Like I think um, Indonesia is definitely an interesting one to watch. Malaysia, Philippines, because they haven't taken the journey via the cards in the same extent as Australia or Singapore or Hong Kong. So I think for that hockey stick uptake of real-time payments in those card mature markets, something else has to be offered. And sometimes I think, is it instant or is it when we're adding another service to it? Because we haven't had that effect as, as India has become, been known for now. I mean, it is the poster child when we talk about real-time payments.
1: Yeah, yeah. How, how is the uh, thing happening in Thailand? Because Thailand also is coming up very fast and it is like number three uh, today in the world and slated to become maybe number two very soon. Is it like a wallet-based uh, product where you link your proxy to and then do it, or is it like a bank account or is it a credit card? How is it happening?
2: It's an account-to-account payments, so it is cards. But to, to my understanding of what I say, I'm not an expert on Thailand. I think what I did was this big push from the government to create government-based wallets for uh, the population that they did disbursement in, and it was very much a story about moving away from cash. As you probably know, they are, I think, it's almost sixty percent cash-based uh, uh, market. And but there's still nowhere close to the volume. It's not as big market as India, but it is to get the people to use it all the time. But I think where they had the uptake is also from those small or micro merchants and it's been a story about that overlay on the wallet that is most time QR-based and that has just given those participants, and now I'm talking on the merchant side, the ability to accept digital payments because the hardware by itself was just that too much of a hurdle to actually move into digital. Right. So, I think a QR, we can't talk enough about QR codes because this really has been the enabler for the whole move to digital.
1: No, absolutely. I think that's the easiest, again, the you know, lowest common denominator where you just open your app, you scan, you enter the PIN if required, and you know, complete the transaction. that's.
2: On that though, it's the same, but it's different in every market. So, one thing we still would like to see is like, even more standardized user experience on that note because it is which wallet can I use here? Or it's still a little bit of hesitation, I think, around how do I do it at this merchant and what of those codes should I scan? I mean, Indonesia, again, they really have had a great strategy over the last couple of years and with their five-year blueprint plan and have created those IRS, which is their standardized QR code is really as one enabling that you you scan one code, even if whatever wallet you're using, and that is confidence to the end consumer. And with confidence comes trust, comes usage.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, we've traversed that path. And uh, at the start in India, we had multiple operators having multiple QR codes at the same merchant, right? And people were confused in terms of, which QR code should I scan and do I, have that particular app to kind of make the payment or transaction, but then very quickly we realized that this will not work, and we need to make life simple both for the merchant as well as the customer. And you know, then we had a interoperable QR code, which NPCI set out for, and you know, we actually had uh, everything getting merged into one, and now it's very easy. Where I, as a customer, don't use, uh, you know, don't need to think, even if it's even if I have a Google Pay app and if there is a fourth pay end of QR code at the location, I can just quickly scan, it will still go through in less than a minute, and the transaction will be complete. So it's very, very seamless and easy. Uh, you are right, I think that is one of the key challenges, uh, steps to kind of ensure that adoption picks up at both ends. So uh, I, I just wanted to kind of shift gears and talk about the cross-border transactions, which we alluded to earlier. Uh, if we look at, uh, Asia as a market, and you know there have already been some efforts to link the RTP systems of few of these countries. So we have Singapore and Thailand kind of linked uh, from a real time payments. I don't know how uh, successful uh, the adoption has been. Uh, India uh, through the NPCI International has also linked the uh, has also linked the uh, RTP system with uh, Singapore. And, you know, that where the merchant acceptance is there for UPI payments and vice versa in India. So I just wanted your perspective on what you are seeing in the cross-border space for RTP. How is that going to evolve and, you know, whether it's really going to be a success or whether there'll be a lot of challenges to ensure awareness, adoption, technology, security, etc.
2: I think it's early days in a very exciting story. So it's definitely one of my favorite topics to talk about. And I think it has so much potential and for so many reasons. But if it will be fast and easy, then the answer is no straight away. <laughs> but we've seen the linkages come out. We had the MOU signed in Indonesia, well, is it now 18 months ago? Or, oh God, i got a loose track. I think it is 18 months ago. But we had uh, Singapore and Thailand, Singapore and Indonesia, uh, Singapore and uh, and UPI, And really in those really high frequent corridors and what we're solving for was peer-to-peer or small transactions to start off with. And also we have to take into account that those are very mobile population that moves back and forth. So you have the remittance from people working abroad, but you also have a lot of tourists between those countries. So it was really solving for something. Yes, as we said, that thing, you, you are on holiday and you want to use your normal wallet so you just want to scan in your normal way and have that familiarity but what it has done it has set the ball rolling and really taking to the fraud front what challenges do we have to solve when we do real-time payments cross borders and we also have that super exciting project from bis project nexus and why i'm saying super exciting because I think that is where the future is, the multilateral connections, because if we do one-to-one in all the countries, I think this is what's, I can't even say the number, it's more than a thousand different connections you have to do to tie up whatever, 60 countries or something like that. So it is impossible and Nexus is a very promising story. They have the tech working, looking at the regulatory frameworks around it, but again, Will it be nexus that solves this? I doubt it, because who would own and who would operate it? I mean, BIS is not an entity, to to my knowledge, that would do so. But I think the future is that something, a network of networks, several different nexuses that would cut down all the different connections we have to do that would maybe keep us in the hundreds instead of the thousands. As you can hear, I get excited when I'm talking about this, because I think it would bring the region so much closer together and we know that it is through trade markets prosper and and trade. You can't trade if you can't pay, and payments is the movement or money and movement of data. so we just have to solve it. But to the point, the regulation and to to manage the access and what requirements, exactly what we said before, it's like open architecture, who has access to this? And if I connect my Australian real-time payments network with UPI and you manage the people on your end, I have to trust that you have the same rules as me. The biggest hurdle and the biggest, if I dare to say pay point, the most costly thing we have in cross-border payments is AML, CFT, and all those things around in data and to keep payments safe. So I don't know if that was a long answer. I'm excited. I think it will be super valuable. Will it be easy? No but it's something we definitely have to get done.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. Uh, I think, uh, I think we need to have that central kind of, uh, pipe where all the RP payment systems can come together and connect on. And that, as you rightly said, Nexus could be one. I've heard that Swift is also working out a central kind of, uh, infrastructure where few of these payment systems can come and, you know, uh, hook onto. So I think that's also going to be interesting. NPCI through its international arm is also trying to do a similar kind of thing. Let's see how you know that progresses. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, very very exciting to kind of see what's in store for real time payments in Asia, uh, where you know a large part of the real time payments. So I think the only significant country outside Asia, pack which is focusing on real time payments, is Brazil through its PICS kind of. Uh, venture. But uh, other than that, a lot of this stuff is happening in Asia. So we are at the right spot and the right time.
2: Absolutely. I agree about that. I always say when I speak globally, like don't talk about what you're doing here. Look like East, <laughs> I was going to say, depending on where we are. But look at what API is developing because we're doing it in a different pace and we're also doing it in a different way for the masses. So I totally agree with that. And we are so early in the journey.
1: Great. It was a pleasure talking to you, Camilla, and, you know, have different exchange of views. Thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to seeing you here in GFF on the first week of September.
2: Yeah, I can't wait. It's very exciting.
1: Excellent.
0: We want to take this opportunity to thank Meher Gandhi, partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Camilla Bullock, CEO of Emerging Payments Association Asia, for taking time off their schedule to bring you this episode. The Global Fintech Fest, global collaboration for a responsible financial ecosystem. Inclusive, resilient, sustainable. Happening in Mumbai from the 5th through the 7th of September 2023. The Global Fintech Fest 23 is brought to you by the National Payments Corporations of India, the Payments Council of India and the Fintech Convergence Council. For more details about GFF 23, visit globalfintechfest.com. We also want to thank the team at Ubersaga, the official podcast partner for GFF23. Post-production and sound design by Subhash, editing and scripting by Dash, and voiceover by Abe.